The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Mr. President, I'm here! I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun! He's gonna shoot the president! Holy smokes, I've gotta do something! All right, Lee, time to become an American hero. Darkmyths.org and Neopolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. two representatives refused to talk to talk to me uh, in the presence of the Dallas police at the Dallas City Hall last Saturday night. I have been requested to return to New Orleans for questioning. I have refused simply because I have a job and family here to consider. At no time I have refused to be interviewed by proper authorities and at no time in the future I will be. I know nothing pertinent that I could tell the New Orleans people, but any time they wish to question me under the reasonable condition mentioned before, I am available from uh, Garrison inviting you to be on his team? No, I received uh, news from a mutual friend and say that Mr. Garrison was wanting to uh, talk to me. And uh, okay, I, first I want to thank everybody who have been calling my house, offering me all type of help uh, yesterday and today. I may be needing all that help because uh, I intend to fight until the end this extradition until everybody will know what Garrison really is. The biggest fraud of this year. And that, folks, was the voice of Sergio Arkasha Smith. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is episode 120 of the Lone Gunman Podcast. I am Rob Clark, and I got a great show for you today. Uh, Before we get started, though, I want to touch on something real quick. A few things, actually. My friends, my family over at the Dark Myths Collective of Podcasts feature a podcast every month for you to check out. And I'm here to tell you about it. And this month, for June, we're focusing on a podcast called Blurry Photos. 
You can find all their stuff at blurryphotos.org. And the hosts are Dave Flora and Dave Stecco, two Daves. So they basically go by Flora and Stecco. But, you know, they, they, they talk about stuff from uh, history, mythology, conspiracy, the paranormal. Um, they do keep a sense of humor about it, but they do do lots of research. And, uh, you know, they, they joke the whole way. Um, each episode starts off with an original uh, humorous sketch, and then they actually get into the show. They've been doing it for four years. Uh, their entire back catalog is free to listen to at their website. That's blurryphotos.org. Um, some some highlighted episodes are 135, The Wendingo, 137, The Flat Earth Theory, or episode 124, Rainmaking. Okay? So make sure you check it out. It's a funny, entertaining podcast, and I highly, highly recommend it. Okay, today, folks, before we get started here and uh, really get into what we're doing, um, it is, of course, time for Ridiculousness of the Week. That's right, people. Ridiculousness of the Week. Now, I don't know how many of you out there are familiar with something that's been taking the internet by storm lately called the Mandela Effect. Okay, but basically the idea of it is this, that that some people believe that they are experiencing um, and noticing certain effects of a parallel timeline, like a parallel universe type deal, you know. Um, the reason it's called the Mandela effect is that some people remember Nelson Mandela, uh, dying in jail. Um, when in fact he did not, uh, he lived to a very, uh, old age, at least according to the timeline that we're on now. Um, he died in 2013. I distinctly remember president Obama, uh, going to his funeral and several other world leaders, um, but some people don't remember that. Some people believe that he died in jail, uh, many years ago. Um, you know, weird, weird stuff like this. Like some people remember Kirk Douglas dying, uh, some time ago. Uh, and I, I thought I did too. I thought I remembered seeing pictures like in the Inquirer of Michael Douglas, you know, wearing sunglasses at his father's funeral. But in fact, that didn't happen either. <laughs> at least not in this timeline. Um, some other odd things are, are just the way the people remember, um, brand names, uh, like Captain Crunch being spelled out Captain instead of Cap'n, you know, C-A-P-N, um, Bragg's apple cider vinegar, it's organic, uh, some people remember it being called Bragg's, B-R-A-G-G apostrophe S, uh, but in fact, it never was in this timeline, it always was just Bragg brag organic raw apple cider vinegar um some others are the, are the way the chick-fil-a is spelled uh it's actually spelled out c-h-i-c-k dash f-i-l dash a in this timeline some people remember it being c-h-i-c or c-h-i-k only um yeah i always thought it was c-h-i-k but uh you know just just weird little things like this you know little glitches in the matrix and uh a friend of mine sent me one, of course, while we're talking about this. 
for the JFK assassination, you know, with the question mark, the Mandela effect. So, of course, this intrigued me a little bit. Um, oh, one other one that, that's very popular on the Internet before we get into this is, is the Berenstein Bears. Now, when I was growing up, I could have swore that it was the Berenstein Bears, spelled B-E-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. Okay, the Berenstein Bears. Um, apparently, it never was that. Um, according to this timeline, it has always been the Berenstain Bears. B-E-R-E-N-S-T-A-I-N. Like stain, like you stain, you know, you have, like you have a ketchup stain on your shirt. Stain. That doesn't even sound right to me. The Berenstain Bears. I don't know. I always thought it was Baron Steen. Um, but that's the Mandela effect in a nutshell. Um, so I watched the video and I'll post it up over on TLGpodcast.com for you to watch as well. And you can check it out. You know, I clicked on it. It's got a picture of uh, LBJ being sworn in uh as the as the cover photo you know on on Air Force 1 with Jackie standing there and of course Albert Thomas in the background giving the old wink and uh the gist of the video didn't really have much to do with a Mandela effect though um although the person that made this video seems to think that it does um now I'm not saying here sitting here and saying, you know, that the Mandela effect is something real and that there's a glitch in the matrix and, you know, we're seeing cracks, uh, you know, fetter through. Um, it is odd though. It's an odd phenomenon, you know, just, I think it has more to do with the way your brain associates things and remembers things, um, you know, more along that kind of line, but this video seems to think that uh, Jackie Kennedy was behind JFK's assassination and that she was a Jesuit assassin. Yeah, a Jesuit assassin. And that she pulled his head down and <laughs> shot him real quick, then shoved the gun in behind him. And now that this is the way this guy believes that the assassination went down and that this Pruder film has been changed from the way everybody remembers it. Um, it's a very odd thing, but uh, likely to me to be much more ridiculousness, ridiculousness of the week. Yeah. So everybody out there, if you have any good examples of the Mandela effect that I haven't mentioned, I know there's some good videos out there. Uh, on the internet, I'll post a few of those over on TLGpodcast.com as well for you to check out if you're interested in learning more about the Mandela Effect and seeing if you remember things differently than the way they are now. Uh, you know, I think it's a good, uh, you know, it could spark a good conversation um, with your friends if you want to, you know, talk about some cool stuff. But yeah, check it out. And without further ado, I bring to you my friend an author of Two Princes and a King, which you can get on Amazon right now, and I highly suggest that you do, Mr. Carmine Savastano. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is episode 
120 of the Lone Gunman Podcast. This is your host, Rob Clark, and back on the show, my friend, the proprietor of the Neapolis Media Group and author of Two Princes and a King, and my friend, Carmine Savastano, comes back on the show. What's up, man? Not much. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing pretty good, considering... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Life has been seemingly rough for a lot of people. We know these week, few weeks. Yeah, we've had a few weeks, haven't we? Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's all good. It's all good. Keep on pushing. That's yep. all we can do. Ever forward, my friend. Ever forward. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so today, I wanted to have you on to talk about the Garrison investigation and the subversion and infiltration being attempted you know, to, to kind of sidetrack what he was doing. And be- before we actually started recording, you made a really good point that I'd like to reiterate that we're going to talk about a lot of stuff here today, and we're going to have a lot of documents for you to check out people over at TLGpodcast.com. And Carmine made the very astute point that it would have been a hell of a lot easier to have somebody from the CIA sit Jim Garrison down and say, look, <laughs> We understand what you're trying to do, but you might be unknowingly, you know, uncovering things that we don't want the public to know that we're doing. So you need to kind of chill a little bit because, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that, and you're going to mess it all up, you know, even if they weren't involved. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, if they were involved, of course, you know, then there's a little bit of a problem there. But even... Even if we say, okay, the CIA wasn't involved at all in the Kennedy assassination, you know, but what Garrison was doing could have possibly compromised what they were doing in other places and other things, you know, in the course of his investigation into the Kennedy assassination. Of course, everything's tied with Cuba and Castro and, you know, these assassination attempts. And of course, New Orleans was rife with, you know, Cuban exiles and, you know, intelligence people and, you know, mafia, everything else. And of course this is Oswald's hometown. So, you know, it was a it was a, a hotbed of uh craziness going on down there. And, you know, the CIA had people down there for sure. You know, the FBI had a big presence in in, in New Orleans as well. And uh Carmine, you were nice enough to dig up some good documents for us to go over here. So let's jump right into it with our document numero uno. Okay. Okay. Well, this one is a file on James Garrison that the agency. Uh, it's, it's this is before Garrison has made any public announcement that he's going to be actually doing a trial. He might not have even had his suspect chosen at this point, but he was definitely investigating different sources and he was trying to come up with how he would structure an investigation. So uh, I believe the earliest that I've read, uh, Garrison began in late 66. So this is probably after he's gotten some bones structured down and he's starting to interview people. He's, you know, starting to come up with just, you know, the the investigation has just began. But already the agency was getting wind of it in February of 67. Oh, yeah. So the, the agency's basically is seeking to block and hamper Garrison's efforts and... That could have been anticipated, you know, I'm sure. It's not it's not out of the realm of possibility, as some officials tried to say. And presumably, they were simultaneously running hundreds of various projects and operations internationally. Yeah. So, you know, 
sensitive operations were compartmentalized and only a small group of agency personnel were aware. Even in some cases, you know, we know that directors of intelligence like McCone and William Colby were ignorant until after they left the agency and the congressional investigation later revealed the operation. Right. So there are people in the agency that had a stake in seeing Garrison's investigation fail, whether or not, yeah, as you said, the agency was involved. So, you know, and I don't think it's any seemingly direct connection to the assassination that forced their hand. I think that, you know, they sought to conceal their informants, both legal and illegal, <laughs> their <laughs> operations, both legal and illegal. Yep. And, you know, Garrison's investigation put everything at risk of discovery. You know, the Castro plots that Alan Dulles had concealed from the Warren Commission is one of those things. If Garrison could have got somebody that was involved in that and they would have spilled the Castro plots, it would have revealed that Dulles had lied to the rest of the Warren Commission and just totally blown up the entire JFK investigation. Yeah, well, as we'll find out later, um, you know, they, they did, they were running some propaganda operations in New Orleans, you know, at mm -hmm. the time, as far as, you know, anti communists and, and anti uh, Castro. Uh, and with stuff with the Cubans, and you know, we'll, we'll get into all that. But yeah, I mean, they were they were uh, doing stuff down there, you know. And to have all this exposed would have been probably not a good thing because they're not supposed to be doing this shit over here in the United States. Exactly. This was never supposed to be operating domestically. This was to be operating yeah. internationally. Yeah. So yeah. So these plots that you know you already brought up some of the elements that were in New Orleans, in Miami, in the air, in, in a lot of the major city areas. You know the plots included mafia and Cuban exile groups. You know you got over a dozen agency informants and sources were compromised by the attention and Garrison's legal maneuvers. So they were also covertly funding uh, large anti-Castro exile groups in efforts to depose Cuba's dictator. So. You know, a member, and that brings us to our first document. A member of one of those groups that's fairly well known by people, whose brother participated in the failed Bay of Pigs, informed the agency about Garrison's case, and that was Carlos Bringuer. Oh and yeah, Bringuer. Yeah, Bringuer, who prior had a public dispute with Lee Harvey Oswald and served in the Directorio Revolucionario Estudiantil, the DRE. Right. And that's one of many Cuban exile organizations the agency was funding. So Bringuer uh, uh, called the CIA and they met with the domestic contact service employee Hunter C. Leake. And Leake and Bringuer in February of 67 got together and he told Leake that the communist propaganda is being widely circulated throughout Latin America to the effect that Lee Harvey Oswald was only a pawn in a plot by the U.S. far-rightist elements to assassinate President Kennedy. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's says a lot right there because <laughs> a lot of people don't really believe that their their little skirmish on the street was not a planned event you know it's it seems more like an attention attention getting thing yeah no one was seriously injured usually at those sorts of things they're worth fists thrown you know there's right. someone got hurt Especially back in the 60s, where yeah. people were a lot more loose with physical confrontations. And then he's going to go on the radio with this guy and try to have a conversation. You know, it's just, it's very odd behavior, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It does, it does have the possible, you know, seeming of something that was set up nicely just to get attention on the whole thing. Yeah. And it worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So... Bringuer was basically getting the agency's attention by saying that you know there were there was a lot of propaganda being pushed, presumably by the communists or those opposed to the CIA, that far rightists were you know plotting, and that basically the officials were trying to cover it up. So he told the agency the U.S. is losing the propaganda war. 
which is causing serious and growing damage to the image of U.S. President Johnson, the CIA, the Pentagon, and the FBI throughout Latin America. He informed the agency that the New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison is conducting his own investigation of Oswald's role in President Kennedy's assassination. He also relayed that he was interviewed by two men from Garrison's office. Uh, agency employee Lloyd Ray states, we believe that there is some truth in the allegation of Garrison's investigation, and that is a matter is under a discreet and sensitive investigation by the FBI. So it's not just the agency. It's the agency, it's the FBI, it's the Department of Justice. There's a lot of officials that are trying to blunt anything going on with Garrison's investigation. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, he wasn't just inf- – you know, trying to be infiltrated by one person. It was there was a lot of folks representing a lot of different uh, interests. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to put it. Because, and and we're going to talk about them today. So we'll we'll, we'll get into we'll, we'll get there, people. Trust me. Yeah. So, so basically, yeah, we have various types of people you've got officials trying to get in on it you've got the witnesses that garrison's actually interviewed that are have their some of them have their own interests you have independent people who are just either trying to make garrison look bad to get themselves fame or they're trying to make him look good to get themselves fame and people who might have even been there attempting to help him but just were making ridiculous claims that couldn't be proven so they hurt his credibility rather than help him uh for instance people like jack martin you know, mm-hmm. people like people like uh, Novell, you know, Gordon Novell. There's a lot of there's a lot of people that were hurting his investigation for whatever reason, you know, whether they were incompetent or whether it was intentional. So, um, yeah. So I, I think that that we might go on to the next one. You want to hit the next document? Sure. Uh, so, this yeah, is this is a good is, one. This yeah. Is... This, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So after Garrison's investigation gained notice with his continuing legal actions and statements in the public, the agency uh, was prepared to fend off any blame that Garrison sought to place upon them, even right, rightful blame. So they attempted to defend the existing but unknown links to the agency that were possessed by some of Garrison in Garrison's investigation. So the Justice Department, the executive branch, and the CIA officials were closely observing and manipulating Garrison's case illegally, by the way. People mm-hmm. need to remember that, too. Garrison was the rightfully elected district attorney of New Orleans. That was his jurisdiction. That's the whole thing about our country and having, you know, states' rights versus federal rights versus local rights. The local government is supposed to be allowed to perform without hindrance by those above it, and it wasn't. So that's the big problem. Whether or not you agree with what Jim Garrison was doing or whether or not you agree with that there was a conspiracy, we can prove for sure, based on the evidence, that justice was obstructed in New Orleans. Yeah, he had, he had every do. he had every right to do what he was doing, wrong exactly. or not, you know, right or wrong, yeah. agree or disagree. You know, he had every right to do it, and they were interfering, and they yeah. uh, obstructed justice. Exactly, all. yeah. And that's something too. I think that people might not understand, but they should on both sides of the argument because it's important. Because if we're going that that gets in the way of democracy itself. We, yeah. That man was elected. That man chose to do that. As long as he didn't break the law, he should have been allowed to continue his, un- his investigation unmolested by greater authorities. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's another thing if you want to get into whether his practices of witness, you know, getting witnesses were ethical or not. I mean, that's yeah. a whole other ballgame. Yeah, but, exactly. You know. But, yeah, but he had the right at least to try to conduct an investigation. Exactly. 
So, yeah, so we have everybody interfering. So March, only a scant month later of 1967, the New Orleans field office uh, of the agency reported to the Domestic Contact Service that its counterintelligence staff was keeping score for the DCI, the Director of Central Intelligence, who at the time would have been Richard Helms, on the gruesome proceedings in New Orleans. (laughs) There's gruesome proceedings. Yes. The CI staff is also running name traces which appear in connection with the current investigation of the alleged conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. We regret to have to burden you with this sort of coverage, but have deferred to uh, request after a lively discussion regarding the merit, time, and effort expended on what appears to be a sensational hoax, but understandably could be damaging to the agency if some link could be exploded by enterprising news hounds. You may recall that Lee Oswald was allegedly linked with the CIA in some early newspaper stories. Yeah, I mean, that's some flowery language from James, was it Murphy? Uh, a Lloyd, that's from Lloyd Ray. Oh. Yeah, and, you know, also, you know, on this document, these, these DCS traces that were conducted on these individuals came back with negative results, and they're talking about... People like Leighton Martins, uh, Carlos Caroga, Sergio Acosta-Smith, Perry Russo. They were even checking out Dean Andrews Jr. But one name that did uh, come back as, with positive results with ties to the CIA was David W. Ferry. Mm-hmm. Yes, Ferry definitely had ties. Well, because they knew with Ferry and Bannister, despite what the agency might have wanted people to believe, there were connections directly to the agency. Ferries via the Cuban exiles like Sergio Acacia Smith that he associated with. Same with Bannister. Bannister helped Smith set up a uh, Cuban student group. And Bannister actually did background checks for him. And Bannister, as you know from the file that you know, it was on a, for- a prior show of yours that we discussed it, I found that file that shows that Bannister was also an informant to the CIA for a little while. So yeah, there were direct links. And they lied about all of them. And as you said earlier from our conversation that we had before the show, they should have just gone to Garrison. They really should have. The agency could have saved themselves a ton of problems if they just would have sat him down and said, listen, you, you are on to some agency plots. It's just not the plot you think it is. But instead, they tried to muscle him, and we see what happens. Yeah. Now, all this stuff, they had to waste all this money and all this time and all this effort, and ultimately they failed because it does come out in the wash. Eventually, the files get released, and you get exposed. Yeah, and it's not like Jim Garrison would have not been understanding. I mean, we're talking about a former military man, former FBI agent, Jim Garrison, would have understood that certain things of a sensitive nature don't need to be exploited for the greater good. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he probably would have been reasonable about it if 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 they would have just said, you know, hey, look. You know, you're treading on thin ice here. You're getting into some very sensitive areas. And, you know, we understand what you're doing, but it's not what you think it is. And you're going to be compromising, you know, some very sensitive uh, operations if you continue what you're doing. And we'd appreciate it if you didn't, you know. Yeah, Yeah, what kills me, too, is that, you know, later on, as we'll we'll see in some of the, the later documents, they wasted time on people like Novell. But they never met with Garrison. <laughs> I mean, it, it has to be vanity, I guess. I don't you know. know. They just thought that they could muscle him and he'd have to, you know, maybe at the time they're at the height of their powers. So they thought that whatever they wanted was going to happen no matter what. It had but, to be. 
Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. They should have just <laughs> sat down quietly. T- t- like, please don't don't destroy all of our operations. Yeah, I mean, like, like I said, you know, he's former military. He's former FBI. Yeah. You know, he would have been receptive. I think you're right. But no, instead. <laughs> yeah, they they took the they took the they took the hard way. Yeah, they decided the hard road. Yeah. So yeah, and then that just only and Garrison was savvy with the press, so he knew how to get the story out. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was and they couldn't really. I mean, they had some people in the press, I'm sure, but not locally. They weren't going to be able to stop New Orleans, and once people picked it up in other cities, which happened, and then you had Americans even sending them money. So it showed you that the public, a lot of the public, was behind it. Oh yeah, so they're fight, yeah, they're fighting a losing battle. You can't let get the genie back in the bottle once it's out. Nope, especially once it hits national. You know, he's on Johnny Carson, he's on NBC. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, he's he's on NBC telling the American people that the CIA is involved in the Kennedy assassination. Pretty much. Well, yeah. not not pretty much exactly. <laughs> I mean, it happened. So, you know, things couldn't have possibly gone worse for them. Mm-hmm. At that point, you know, because he's he's laying the blame squarely at the feet of the Central Intelligence Agency, right or wrong, it's it's yeah. very it's very damaging. Oh yeah, and and then, you know, they're lucky at the time that none of these files came out or that nobody came across this stuff, because if that would have happened, they might have actually he might have actually got a conviction right or wrong on Shaw, if yeah. he would have actually been able to demonstrate that some of the evidence backed up portions of what he was saying. Yeah, especially if he would have had that document that that proves that Clay Shaw was a CIA contact agent too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, Shaw was used as a business contact. So, and they once again, it's such a such a little thing. They should have just told him, been like, "Yes, he was connected with us. Here's why. It has nothing to do." Yeah, he's a very wealthy uh, businessman that travels a lot to foreign countries, sees certain things, and yeah. just reporting back, you know. And some people, you know, who are really committed to the wanting to believe that Shaw and Ferry and Oswald were some sort of plot, you have to understand that if the agency, you know, they'd say, well, he never would have told Garrison. Well, no, if the agency, let's say the agency, let's say they're, they're right, that those guys were a lot more important than they seem to be based on the evidence, then effectively the agency could have just lied and give Garrison false information and he might have bought it. So, you know, I mean, there's, it's not in their interest to go so far. You, you're only going to fabricate something if it's in your interest to do so. Yeah. And, and, you know, with Clay Shaw and Ferry, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to put them in a plot. You know, I mean, we got some witnesses that, that, that put them together, put them with Oswald and, you know, how, how reliable is, is this stuff? You know, we don't know, you know, and, yeah. Just like last week, you know, I talked to uh, Robert Taylor of the Minutemen, who actually s- claims that he saw Clay Shaw and David Ferry at a at a Minuteman meeting in Missouri in early '63, and that David Ferry had flown in there and had a bomber jacket on, and you know, Clay Shaw was dressed really nice, looked really dapper, and that he didn't talk to him, but he definitely saw him. They made an impression on him, and. You know, of course, as time progressed, at the time, he didn't think anything of it, you know, because he didn't know who the hell they were and whatever, whatever. But, you know, after the, you know, Garrison investigation and, you know, he was like, oh, my God, that's the guy I saw. And, you know. And that seems to me a hell of a lot more probable than a lot of the stories we hear just because it was just a brush encounter, which is likely what happened with most of these people who try to make something more of it. Yeah, you know, that 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 and, and Oswald wasn't with them. That also lends the credibility of truth because everybody always tries to shove Oswald in the story too. Somehow, yeah, Oswald has to make an appearance of some sort. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just find it interesting because 
you know, what the hell are they doing at a Minutemen uh, meeting, well, you know, in Missouri? Because they said the meeting didn't last long. It was only like, a, you know, an hour or so. But, you know, if if they're together, there's, obvi- there's obviously a connection. And, you know, look, it could just be because these guys are, you know, both homosexuals. And, you know, they likely knew each other. Yeah, an anti-communist. Yeah, so I, I guarantee yeah, they, you that they had yeah, similar but... interests and similar sexual interests, and you know they would have been in the same circles, likely, and uh, you know they could have shared the same hatred for Kennedy or or any of this stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, but if cause, you know you had Thomas Beckham putting these guys together, you have Perry Russo putting these guys together, Robert Taylor putting these guys together, people in Clinton, Louisiana putting these guys together. You know, and and once you get so much, you know, you got to start taking it a little more seriously. Yeah, yeah, no, and I agree that I th- and I think that 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 was the problem largely was because Garrison was working with a much smaller amount of actual verifiable evidence, and because he had to take the word of certain people that later turned out, perhaps like Novell, not to be as credible as were hoped that a lot of people have over the years taken just these pieces of credibility and tried to mash them together into, you know, it had to be this way. Well, that's probably not the case, just, you know, when you look at the evidence. Garrison had some great leads, and he went after Shaw. Shaw turned out to be the wrong one, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't negate all of Garrison's ideas. Right. It just, it should make people realize that Shaw isn't the focus of it. It Ferry even is a hell of a lot more likely to have at least connections to anti-Castro groups. Shaw was more of a socialite. You know, he might have been at this minimum meeting. Maybe he funded some of Ferry's activities. I suppose that's possible. Quite possible, you know? yeah. Yeah, you know, stuff like that. But I don't see Shaw as, he's not a militaristic person that would be at the head of a conspiracy. Right. And Ferry too. You know, Ferry doesn't strike me. Ferry could have been used as a pawn, sort of like perhaps Oswald was, but I don't see him as the head of anything either. Well, if only Jim Garrison had found Judith Baker and got her to testify, <laughs> that, things might have been different. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, exactly. He would have had to waste more paper writing down that useless story. Yeah, they might have been able to convict him then, you know? <laughs> <sighs> oh, boy. Sorry, I just had to throw that in there. You know? I know. I was going to say it's not ridiculousness of the week time yet. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so so yeah. We, now we're in. As I said, we're in March. We have uh, all those people checks being done on everybody to see what's going on. That the actual leaders of the CIA, once again, Helms and a lot of the upper echelon, most likely didn't even know that the, any of these people had connections because they were running other operations. So now they're trying to figure out and they're scrambling to try to find out who Garrison might be able to locate that does have an actual connection with them. Um, so I think um, – so yeah, so we have later memos explaining to – we actually in later memos that we're going to go over have people in the CIA explaining to the superiors the last time they had any conversation even in passing with Clay Shaw <laughs> because mm-hmm. they were averse to any connection that could be exploited. <laughs> yep. So in April of that year – we'll go on to the third document. Okay. Uh, April of that year – the agency uh, employee, Raymond Roca, who you'll see come up a lot more uh, in later document from here on. Yeah. He's, he gets interviewed later, too, by the House Select Committee. And he was involved just in a lot of the uh, research and a lot of the uh, counterintelligence staff activities. So 
Roca makes a summary of various people who Garrison involved or sought to involve in his investigation, and then he starts to comment on it. Um, oh, or did I? No, no, I'm good. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I didn't jump these out of order. Yeah, so, so Roca writes. Roca writes to his superiors and he tells other people on the staff that it is suggested that the New Orleans office coordinate closely with, uh, with the New Orleans office of the FBI in respect to investigations by Garrison or his staff or any person known to have or to have had a tie to CIA. It is suggested that the New Orleans office be alert to the possibility that Garrison may tap or may have tapped home or office telephones. Hmm. So it's a side I think that a lot of people never see of the CIA. They're actually afraid in this instance because yeah. all of their plots could be feasibly recorded on a bug that Garrison put that they don't know about. Because they don't have an inside man yet. Mm-hmm. But they will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I would imagine there were a couple, probably even a couple that no one's known about yet. <laughs> uh, so... Some of the agency genuinely feared Garrison and the power that he was legally wielding against their operations. So Rocco warned his fellow agency employees that although Garrison's case now looks flimsy, our knowledge of it is far from complete and may consist almost entirely of what he is allowed to leak. In any case, the impact of any charges leveled by him against CIA would depend less on their veracity or credibility than upon their... Uh, that upon their timeliness and the extent of press coverage. So I think that that reveals to us that it didn't have to be the actual correct charge. It just had to be believable enough to convince the public. Yep. And that's, you know, I mean, that's their own, what they do. Yeah. You know, yeah. how many times, weapons of mass destruction, for instance. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, How many right, times have we heard? Right or wrong, but they were convinced, you know, to pursue that, and it turned out to be total bunk. But uh, mm -hmm. bad intelligence it happens. Wouldn't be the first time. Yeah, and it's actually you can see it in action right here because once again we can come back to, you know, I can't. With all the intelligent and qualified people that were at the agency, I don't understand how one of the officers wouldn't just like, somebody call Garrison. We just need to sit down with him. <laughs> I know. It would have been so much this easier. <laughs> but instead. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. Okay. Uh, the next one's a quick one. Uh, document four. It's just something I think that, you know, it shows you to the extent that they were going. Yeah. And this is, yeah, this is, uh, oh, I wanted to say before I went to this one, uh, in 67 by September, so a few months later, um, the director of central intelligence, Richard Helms, received a list of people linked to Garrison in published comments. So they were basically collecting anything in the media, putting it together and sending it to Helms so that he was always kept up to date on what was being said. So later in their... Uh, investigation slash manipulation of Garrison's case. February 1969, uh, Clay Shaw's uh, the trial was proceeding with jury selection and results were reported to the Office of Security from an unknown staff employee that they had checked all the names against agency files that were and were extremely interested in the process. So they got a list of Garrison's jurors. 
Oh, and really? They then began to, yeah. They began to then take that juror's list apart and put it against the, the agency index to see if any of them had connections with them that they might be able to exploit. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. For instance, uh, Irvin Mason, male, born California in 1920, machine operator at Shreveport Sulphur Company, Negro. Uh, Oliver M. Schultz, male, born 1929, truck driver for New Orleans Electric Utility, married four children, white. <laughs> and uh, the above info is spotty, but with all that is available from the news services and press, we will be happy to assist in any questions. All of the jurors are presumably U.S. citizens and live somewhere or near New Orleans, Louisiana area. Uh, all of the above have been run through the RID and archives index with no positive hits. I have a folder of the trace results if needed. All have also been checked against applicant file and some CI staff indexes. Yeah, I was. So they were very. I'm sorry, what were you saying, Ram? Also, maybe you, uh, we might have missed one. Because I'm looking at uh, thought part number three from April 67. Where they were actually running the RID checks on people like Dean Andrews, Sergio, oh, yeah. Conscious Smith. Um, they say no, no record found for Dean Andrews, no record found for Sergio, Conscious Smith. Although Garrison reportedly leaks or seeks to link him to the CIA, and I like what they say about Guy Bannister. Uh, we don't have to worry about him. Uh, deceased. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I missed that. Yeah, I missed that little piece. Yeah, when they were talking about. Uh... Yeah, the conversation that uh, he had with McConnell, and they started talking about yeah the different people. And no one in this office knew David W. Ferrier had any dealings with him officially or otherwise. Yeah, this seems true of all the persons except paragraph three of the memorandum from 1920. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they were running traces on Leslie Bradley, which I'm guessing was Eugene Hale Braiding, um, Carlos Bringier. Traces being run. See reference B. They were yeah. tracing oh, yeah, yeah, Vernon yeah. Bundy. You know, the, the supposed junkie who saw Clay Shaw and, and Ferry and, and Clinton. Mm -hmm. Just they were checking oh, yeah, checking him for you know, links to the CIA. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And they were doing it to everybody. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't go over the, the whole list, but yeah, uh, Edward S. Butler, Julio, Buznito, Ferry, deceased, no identifiable RI traces. What the the crazy thing about uh, Bannister, they just say deceased. Yeah. He was an informant. They knew. Oh, yeah. But but that wasn't going to be brought up. Or maybe the person who was putting the list together wasn't informed or didn't have access to the file. See, that's the crazy thing about the agency is that at times the left hand didn't know what the right was doing. Right. And there were just so many things going on that half the people they wanted to find stuff, they never actually told the things they were looking for <laughs> where they could be found. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Bannister was balls deep in something down there, and, and uh, they had to know what he was what he was up to. The informant. Oh, definitely through, had, through Smith. Yeah. Yeah. If if he wasn't, you know, if he wasn't working for or reporting to the agency, then somebody else was. What he, you know, what 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 you know, what he was doing down there, for yeah. sure. Because he he had his fingers in all kinds of shit going on down there in New Orleans with the exiles and you know these mm -hmm. extreme right wing groups and you know propaganda yeah. and infiltration and you know. And that all makes sense. Like, I think that's the part that, you know, once again, kind of like, you know, people on each side want to only take the parts they like. 
But the more reasonable is that it's a mixture of both, is that, yeah, Bannister was likely associated in those things, Ferry too, maybe even Shaw to a certain extent, and they probably, we know that Ferry and Bannister knew each other. We know that Martin and Ferry, you know, you can connect them. It's not, Garrison did not have an unreasonable idea just because it didn't play out the way that he thought it was going to doesn't negate the fact that, yeah, these people were all involved. Chances are in illegal activities. We've got the raid on Huma, the Huma station in 61 or 62 that we know Ferry's been linked to, Bannister's been linked to for storing the munitions. Yeah. Uh, we know, yeah, you know, we know that other people that are familiar in the case, like Gerald Patrick Hemming and others have been claimed to have been there. Novell at one point tried to claim he was there. So, the, yeah, there's definitely illegal activities <clears throat> going on. And it all was on Garrison's radar, and he just had so many things going on and had so many forces against him, he wasn't able to get it done. But that doesn't make you know the, the credible leads not credible anymore. Yeah, and speaking of possible infiltrators, you know, since you brought him up, we got to, I'm sure we weren't going to talk about him otherwise, but Jerry Henning, <laughs> you know, worked for a little while as an investigator for Garrison. He, he offered his services and you know, was led down some various roads that uh, didn't quite pan out too well. Mm-hmm. But you know, he's another he's another one. You know that 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 uh, you know Garrison, you know, bought into and and just like some of these other guys we're going to be talking about. Well, I think too. Yeah, I think he had kind of like Novell with Hemming. They had just enough credibility to believe, you know, what exactly they were saying. So it was able to be convincing. Like with Hemming was connected to exile groups. He was illegally training exiles in the United States at camps that the agency at some occasions funded. You know, we, we can produce documents to show that these guys were involved in the anti-Castro activities. It's just that to Kennedy is where it starts to, you know, fall apart. But it was enough and it made sense, you know, since that they could actually account that they knew these people that there are connections between these people then, and then maybe that's a group and, you know, yeah, it could lead them, lead them somewhere else, you know, that they didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no. And I, well, think about it. Think if, if, let's say 1967, I mean, it could have easily, if Garrison would have been able to get his hands on some of the, the actual files, it could have easily gone from uh, the Kennedy case to instead they were running, you know, illegal domestic programs that the CIA was funding foreign nationals. Yep to run illegal programs here to go and kill world leaders in other countries. Yeah, and that's a huge, huge problem if it gets out back then, you know. That, yeah, that's about Kennedy size, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they definitely could not have that. They're trying to protect their interests, you know. They, mm-hmm. They're not just going to let it go and, and see what happens. Of course they're going to try to disrupt things. But like you said, you know, it would be a lot easier to just sit him down and say, look, this is what we're doing. Stay away. <laughs> I know. I don't understand. It'll always baffle me why they didn't. I know. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, and yeah, there were, as you said, just a ton of people. You know, I mean, uh, Novell, Kuroga, Russo, David Lewis, another highly uncredible witness, uh, Emilio Santana, Shaw, uh, Edward Stewart Suggs. Basically, yeah, just a lot of they were they were scraping anything they could to try to protect themselves, you know, and trying to run down every lead they possibly could, which surprises me because a lot of times I wish that they would have used this sort of diligence in their actual investigation. 
right? <laughs> if it didn't just have directly to protect it themselves. I wish they would have used that sort of diligence to actually look for some things. Well, you know, later on, of course, with the HSCA, you know, when they were trying to investigate into the CIA, they, you know, they, they called uh, a guy we're going to be talking about here in a minute, uh, George Jonides, back out of retirement to kind of, you know, run point on, on the CIA access from, you know, to the HSCA. Because as we're going to find out, you know, he had, <laughs> he was, he was involved in some very suspicious activity in New Orleans. And it's, it's a huge red flag for me, for them to pull this guy out of retirement and, and put him in charge of the CIA documents that the HSCA could get their hands on. Yeah, no, it is definitely a curious choice. Uh, he basically got a lot, you know, uh, he had been discussed uh, briefly by some people. And when Joe Anides came out, a lot of, I think, you know, some of the credit for putting the spotlight on him should go to Jefferson Morley. He, he basically has talked a lot about him, you know, written on the subject. Yeah. And jo- Joe Anides, I think, you know, he was, he was operating in multiple places. We can for sure based on, you know, I mean, I know that there's other evidence out there too, but based on the file that I found, I think that we can definitely write, you know, be able to say from this point forward, he was a former employee who was working with student groups, likely Kebza exile Cuban student groups. And he was working for the CIA in 63, despite what officials have said. So do you want to go to him or do you want to do Novell first? Rob? Oh, that's me. I'm had a mute on. <laughs> My uh, fault. Okay. We can no we can problem. go we can go to jo- uh, Joe and Needy since we're talking about him and Okay. You, you found that uh, very good fitness report done on on George Joe Needy's in the time period of January 1st, 1963 to July 31st, 1963. So we're talking about a seven month stretch here, performance evaluation. And why don't we get into a little bit of his specific duties? Okay. Well, uh, Joe and eighties was an ops officer, you know, people who have a look at the later on in his specific duties was deputy chief of branch handling in absence of chief, all aspects of political action and psychological warfare activity and supervising case officers and clerical personnel. So this would indicate that he was a high-ranking officer. In the yep. absence of the chief of the station, he was in charge. And the station he happened to be at was JM Wave. <laughs> yeah. Which is a notorious station in Miami <laughs> known for running Cuban exile programs. <laughs> yep. Yep, that's a, that's a red flag. Now, another specific duty is he's case officer for student project involving political action, propaganda, intelligence collection, and a hemisphere-wide apparatus, which would also include New Orleans and other places. Yeah. Anything across the hemisphere. Yeah. And and to, to really tear that apart, uh, student project, meaning people around the same age as Lee Oswald, you know, we're talking about probably college students, uh, Involving political actions, 
propaganda intelligence collection. Okay, that sounds just like what Lee Oswald was doing in New Orleans. And I'm not saying Joey Needy's is running him, because I'm sure there'd be a few buffers in between there and there. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's right there is proof that the CIA was running these kind of operations. Yeah, and if not with Oswald, then someone like Bringay would be perfect. Right. Bringay would be another kind of person that would have worked with Joannides. And they talk about later in the document, when they're, when they're talking about a 63 fitness report, they say that uh, under the subject's direct, uh, references made to January 1963, the period covered by this subject has done an excellent job in the handling of a significant student exile group. Hmm. So, like the DRE. <laughs> yep. Uh, which here too has successfully resisted any important degree of control. Under subject's direction, an exile teacher's group reached a high level of effectiveness in the propaganda field and was turned over to another case officer. Subject has effectively terminated unproductive operations in the prop field, one magazine and a newsletter, and is building up station radio capability directed at the main target. Cuba is what I would assume the main target is. Right. And you know, this is not you this is not a unique set of circumstances, you know, to the CIA. I mean, the FBI were doing this kind of stuff with like COINTELPRO. Um and you know, even both guys I talked to for the Minutemen said that they were doing a lot of the same things, just out communists. Um, you know, run running these you know, false kind of uh student political things to and you know propaganda to get people to sign up then they you know then they'd have their name on a list and they could out these people as communists know who could be trusted who's not you know and it yeah. would just it would just be fascinating to have guy banister's files but uh yeah well and we'll happen. but we definitely know that he did work with Sergio Ocasio Smith so once again it's another link to Cuban exile groups you know, they these are those are very close as far as what they were doing. Bannister, Hal Bannister could have known Joan Edies, or Bannister could have known someone who was a buffer for Joan Edies because they were they were all basically doing the same thing. They were doing psychological warfare and propaganda. Exactly. And they, like you were saying, Bannister was doing lists for he was actually doing background checks on lists to see who was good to have in Smith's organization. And who could was a communist that they could use that information against them later too. So yeah, a lot of similar activity going on, but all these different groups. Yeah, and he would have been in the position to to to, to know stuff like this. You know, I mean, former SAIC of Chicago, former assistant police chief and or deputy police chief in New Orleans. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you're not you're not going to be uh, a deputy police chief and not know what's going on in your city. And and you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, he should have had, yeah, all these guys would have had some sort of line on it. And I think the reason why a lot of people find Joannides to be so nefarious is because he had a direct hand in, for sure, at the very least, hemisphere-wide operations. But we we can definitely say that at, at Jam Wave, operating from Miami with student groups, and that's where, you know, there were DRE there, there were CRC there. All the exile groups went to Miami first before they went anywhere else. And they spread out to other areas. So he had his finger on the pulse of everything, and then he retires. And for some reason, 
they neglect to tell everyone <laughs> that was working with the HSCA that he was a former case officer for one of the very groups that he was supposed to be giving them evidence on. <laughs> yeah, and that's a big red flag too, people. Maybe a conflict of interest, you might say. <laughs> yeah, a gigantic one. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, people don't realize that that sort of stuff was going on. He was represented to just be another person from the Office of Legal Counsel. Yeah, just another schleppy CIA, you Official, know, yeah, just pusher paper. Some guy there paper to push, pusher. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just there to push papers. He had no, you know, and, and that was affirmed to everyone, I'm sure, at some point, legally, that these were just people with no direct interest, but Joan Edes had a direct interest. It, the, that was his work. They were basically investigating the things he did. Yeah. So he had an interest in making sure that they never found any of the illegal things that he might have done. Yeah, and he would have been in the perfect position to know exactly what should go and what should stay hidden. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have, uh, I, can't, I can't remember what show it was, but one of your prior shows that we did, one of my favorite documents that I found was, you know, it's just a little side document, but it just talks about, it's, S, it's S.D. Breckenridge, who was the uh, inspector general at the time of the CIA, I believe. And he wrote to the HSCA, you know, the HSCA said that they've read all of our files. Let me just be the first to tell you, no, you haven't. <laughs> you haven't even read 70% of all of our files on this. <laughs> Definitely believable. So, yeah, you know, I mean, yes, yeah, so, I mean, he also, I think what Joni just represents is he's another active manipulation by the agency. You know, he is actively subverting the HSCA to make sure that things come out the way they need to for the agency. Yep, make sure they're coming out smelling like a rose. No discernible connections anyway. Right. So... Gordon Novell? Oh, boy. <laughs> Mr. Novell, yeah. A lot of people try to say that Gordon Novell is a legitimate connection in the Garrison case and that he's worth exploring and that some of what he said is true. And I'm just going to have to say that I disagree on all those based on the evidence. <laughs> yeah, and if you... Well, I'll, I'll put, I might put some of them up, up on the page, but he, uh, in his later years, gave some pretty wild interviews <laughs> oh, okay. I'll to, I'll, yeah, I haven't heard any of those. I'll have to check those oh, out. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. He looks. Well, he oh, looks yeah. Like he said character. some crazy stuff in this stuff. I can only imagine he'd give him a couple more years to come up with some stuff. Oh, yeah. This is when he was probably in his 60s. And he's recounting, you know, everything that he did in his life. And his. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. wild stuff. Yeah. For any of the listeners that don't know who he is, Gordon Novell was a fixture of disinformation <laughs> <laughs> within the Garrison case. He was also a repeated thorn in the side of the agency. He claimed associations and employment with the agency. However, the evidence reveals his claims are not accurate. Novell did have multiple contacts with a few central intelligence agency representatives, but each contact was used by Novell. It, It never really came to anything, but the contacts themselves, you know, just that he had made contact so many times, were used by Novell to sell an improbable idea and later claim connections to the agency. Right. And if if he was actually used by, you know, some of these people, it was never official and it was likely, you know, under the table type stuff because he was a dirty kind of kind of dude. He was very skilled at uh um what's the word I'm looking for? 
listening devices, uh, you know. Oh, okay, yeah, tabs, yeah. wiretaps, and all that. Yeah, yeah, he was very, you know, very skilled at all this kind of stuff. So if, if you know, if he ever was used, it was probably never in an official capacity, and likely wouldn't have showed up on anybody's, uh, r- you know, radar or anything like that. He probably wouldn't be mentioned by name in documents or or anything of that, of that nature. And, but yeah, and his skills would have probably, like you said, been in the technological field that he knew something about. Exactly. Have, he wasn't an assassin. He wasn't there to see Oswald do anything. You know? No, he wasn't a super spy or anything no. like that. You know, he would have been used for his technical skills, you know, more than likely if he was used at all. And, yeah. But like you said, you know, we have no proof that he was ever used except what he says. So we do have some funny stories though. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so one occasion long after Garrison's trial, just as an illustrative about Novell, was his attempt to have the agency let him conduct arms sales on a modified ship capable of military combat. <laughs> he basically wanted to set up like a cruise liner that was military capable that he would display armaments and sell them across the world, I guess, for his and the agency's benefit, and then let the agency find out who all these arms dealers were that would come on his boat, I guess. Oh, my God. Yeah. So his roving arms deal thing doesn't really get accepted. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder. I can't see why not. But (laughs) Ultimately, uh the agency uh, officer dealing with Novell, an interesting fellow on his own, J. Walton Moore, mm-hmm. who was the, the former leader of the Dallas field office in 1963 of the agency, states, We listened to him, his expressions of anger and frustration over having his proposal thwarted by some unseen and nameless bureaucrats of questionable competence, and we remained silent as he delivered his threat. When he had finished, we told him frankly that he had been wasting our time and his frequent calls and unsolicited contributions, and we asked him not to call us again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he sounds like uh, a nut job, basically. Yeah, by yeah. seventy nine, def- by seventy five, definitely. If he hadn't been yeah. in sixty seven, by seventy five, <laughs> he was having some problems. Yeah. Yeah, these interviews, yeah. man. He looks like he just stepped out of like a nineteen seventies uh, British spy thriller movie. I mean, he's he's got the exactly. dark, the dark black suit, turtleneck. You know, the dark, you know, um, dyed black goatee. You know, he's oh my god, it's it's crazy. <laughs> I'm about to find him and put him up. He's Doctor Evil, <laughs> basically. Yeah, Novella's trying to be Doctor Evil a couple of times. Here. Stroking his kitty cat. <laughs> so they basically find Novell ridiculous, you know, and there's several instances that he has attempted to furnish information or sell proposals. They have that in quotes to the CIA. Uh, the file material suggests that Novell fancies himself an intelligence officer and is prone to making exaggerated claims and appears somewhat unbalanced. Yeah, well, he sounds like a an idea man. You know, he's got a lot of got a lot of ideas. ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I got a great idea. Let me bug you again. Yeah, well, here's another one. Uh, For example, in July 1974, a source of the Los Angeles office was approached by Novell, who was seeking a company to do filming for an expose-type documentary movie on the topic of the CIA as instigator of the Watergate break-in. He claimed to be getting substantive assistance and cooperation from James Garrison. (laughs) I'm sure that went over well. Exactly. (laughs) 
know? <laughs> oh my! So novellas, yeah, bringing heat to Garrison even in '74, like years after the trial's over, novellas still causing problems for Garrison. Yeah. Well, Garrison might have been bitter enough to 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 use him to do that. Who who knows? Yeah, I mean it's. Well, and it's just that's the pattern of that novel, you know, often displays. You know, the boat story. Yeah, he, he's he's just constantly trying to get a deal done, try to make some money on it, to try to manipulate it so that he can get some sort of advantage with the agency. Yeah, that definitely sounds like his mo. So the agency, which I haven't seen, I mean, I'm sure they exist for other people, but I haven't seen a lot of these. The agency actually creates a certificate. <laughs> and certifies uh, I, Robert S. Waddles, the, the director of personnel for the Central Intelligence Agency, and in this capacity have custody of the personal records of the Central Intelligence Agency. These personnel records are maintained in the state of Virginia. I have directed that a diligent search of the Central Intelligence Agency personnel records be made to ascertain if Gordon Dwayne Novell has ever been employed or considered for employment by the agency. <laughs> the diligent search has been completed and indicates that Gordon Dwayne Novell, at his request on 22 December 1967, was interviewed as an applicant for employment by a member of the Office of Personnel, Central Intelligence Agency. The search also indicates, based on the information supplied at such an interview, the interview did not re- recommend employment and his application for employment was not further processed by the central intelligence agency the personal records of the central intelligence agency contain no record of employment of gordon Dwayne novell yeah so what he was doing in new orleans could have been part of his uh job application you know so look what i can do here's what i can do for Mm -hmm. you yeah yeah he might have been trying to impress them by screwing with garrison's case yep and yeah we know that he offered you know random he sent he sent a, a, a FedEx to Richard Helms, who was director of the agency at the time, you know, trying to talk about what he was doing with Garrison and that Garrison was saying that he worked for them, so would he pay his legal bills for him? <laughs> this, that really shows you how far they went because they didn't want this guy. They're like, we don't know who he is. We'll swear it in court. We have officers who will swear it in court. It's notarized. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, trying to trying to make a name for himself, and in the process, you know, be a kind of thorn in everybody's side, and really looking out for one person, and that's himself. It was always, yeah, always for Novell's advantage that he was, and I think that this next, the our last document, I think, goes into that, where it it shows you based on various witnesses and people who knew Novell when they're talking about him because they did an internal investigation of him, I'm sure before they decided to do the certificate and the agency's internal investigation of Novell stated that his motives remain obscure because I'm sure they wanted to use him if they could find something useful for him to do, but because he was, because he was so out there and because he wasn't paying attention to any credibility for what he was claiming, they just realized he was useless as far as their their activities. But they were still trying to figure out anything they could of use for him. Like his motives remain they say his motives remain obscure. It is a clear possibility that he remained an ally of Garrison after their seeming antagonism developed. If so, his efforts to link himself publicly with the CIA could be part of Garrison's attack upon the agency. This theory would also explain Novell's relationship to Garrison crony Willard Robertson. Another possibility is the feud is genuine. 
Novell has made very strong accusations against Garrison in major radio broadcasts. These include charges of occasional homosexuality and possible direct involvement in the alleged murder of David Ferry. Hmm. How crazy is that? I had never heard those until I came across this. Document. Yeah, those me either. That's, uh, that's definitely interesting. And once again, just like with Garrison and Shaw, those could hurt Garrison even though they weren't true. Right. You know, he was just, he was slandering Garrison in the media and officials thought that that might be useful, I suppose, but they couldn't trust him because he just kept changing his story so many times and just saying anything. Yeah. Why the hell would Garrison kill his star witness? <laughs> exactly. That makes no sense whatsoever. So I think he was just throwing anything against the wall to see what stuck. Oh man. And of course that wasn't the first time they tried to get Jim Garrison hemmed up on some homosexual types stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were anything they could to discredit him. Unbelievable. So Unbelievable. the agents, yeah, the agency had an informant named Miss Merrily, and she stated that she formed a clear impression that Novell's dislike of Garrison is genuine. Agency employee Donovan Pratt wondered if the dislike was genuine, uh, was Novell's true motivation to, cr- or or if his true motivation was to create. He had a company, International Dynamics Corporation, an aura of prestige as a result of supposed ties to the federal government. Novell had listed the U.S. government as one of his clients. (laughs) That's a bit a little vague. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he repeatedly claimed to have penetrated Garrison's entourage, which to an extent was true. He had gotten in, you know, unfortunately he came across Garrison's radar and once Garrison had questioned him, he tried to make the most of it and was trying to play both sides against each other, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, he wasn't the only one that got in there and and tried to wreak havoc, you know. There's you know, some other people we didn't touch on too much, you know, maybe we can at a future date. People like Walter Sheridan and Oh yeah. Yeah, Rick Novell Boxley worked directly, and, yeah. Novell worked directly with Sheridan and one of the uh, documents that I've read, I, I think we talked about it was uh it was uh, the CIA was keeping track because it was a piece that was supposed to bury Garrison, was the quote. Yeah, and of course, you know, Sheridan was working for Bobby and, you know, the Justice Department. And, and they, had, they, you know, they had their own things that they didn't want to get out as well, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, yeah. No, and they directly interfered. You know, you had the Justice Department flying down uh, Dr. Boswell to come in and do damage control on Dr. Fink's statements that were going on during the Garrison trial. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, people always say, "Well, you know, RFK wasn't really, you know, didn't 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 you know didn't believe in what Garrison was doing and and believe the official story and or this and that." But you know, he uh, you know, he sent Sheridan down there to definitely shake Stop things. Some. Yeah, shake some, shake some things up because you know there was some stuff going on, and uh, I've talked about it on an earlier episode, but. There was some stuff going on in the Justice Department with with the Oswald file and Otto Atepka and and Sheridan and all these guys. They were trying to definitely cover up, you know, their their Cuban exile involvement and their, mm-hmm. you know, things like well, Alpha yeah, sixty six and. Yeah, that's the thing. The Kennedys, people need to understand, were human, and they did screw up a bunch of times, and they did go along with the agency on things like the Bay of Pigs. Yeah. Yeah, they made some mistakes, and they made some enemies. And unfortunately, based on what Bobby wanted to keep hidden and what the Justice Department wanted to keep hidden, they obstructed Garrison's case. And they did it intentionally. 
You know, so you can't hold Bobby as being totally innocent. He was part of the obstruction because he let it go. He knew that he knew what Sheridan was doing, or somebody knew. You know, you can't say that he was totally ignorant of what everyone under him is doing. Yeah, and it's like you know, it's likely Bobby knew a lot of what you know was going on down there because his office was it. You know, he had an office at the CIA building. You know, and he would have been privy to a lot of this operations likely or, or at least heard some buzz about them you know but well yeah and him and john when when president kennedy was in office he and president kennedy directly interceded into some of the cia operations like they ran before you know the bay of pigs and all the failures that started to happen they had you know uh trying to remember what it was the special group and bobby was in charge and it was Various, you know, other people like the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and they would all get together and meet about various things like Cuba. So, you know, he was point on that. And President Kennedy was the ultimate authority. So, yeah. And they were getting, you know, CIA briefs every day. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they weren't, they didn't know everything, of course, because nobody knew everything at the agency, even its own leaders. Right. (laughs) But they didn't know a large portion and they couldn't have been ignorant of all of it, you know, they, they, they played integral parts in the original assassinations and overthrow attempts on Cuba. Yeah. Well, man, interesting stuff for sure. I, you know, I hope Carmine that next year we get at least some more documents out of there that we can help us, you know, to piece some of this stuff together. Cause you know, what, what we have so far, you know, you can really, really find some interesting stuff in there. Um, but, you know, you got to know where to dig and you got to get lucky. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot of people don't do the hard work anymore of going to the archives and getting a box and just digging and digging and digging for hours. Oh, yeah. You and know, I understand. It, yeah. Even online, it can be. I mean, it's just it's a daunting task because there's so many millions of files. I know. And you know, if you don't know where to look, you're going to be looking maybe, unfortunately, in the wrong place for a long time until you find something. Yep. Yep. And I, I don't know about you, but looking, trying to look through the archives online is a daunting task, man. Like, you know, you need to know. You know me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's my obsession. I know. That's why I'm obsessive, so <laughs> I've just I grown used to it. <laughs> I don't even try. I live literally, I, could, I pray an hour and a half, two hours from the archives. Oh, yeah, you live by the, yeah, the National Archives. Yeah, the one in College Park, you know, where all the stuff is there in Maryland. And uh, it's just it's just so hard, to, you know, to take some time and, and take some time off and go up there and, you know, really try to get into stuff. I think I'd probably go there and waste so much time trying to find something, get like one document and leave or something. <laughs> exactly. Well, usually, yeah, if it's a very special one that you can't get online, I'd say that that's definitely where I've been to the, I went to the national archives once and you, you can find some good stuff or see some, you know, stuff that you couldn't online, but they've, I, you know, I really respect places like the Mary Farrell foundation who have put, all that online for us, though, to make it a lot easier. Because there's people around the world that can do research online where, you know, they're nowhere near any place that carries any of these files. Oh, no doubt. I mean, that's a, that's a really valuable resource, that and, you know, places like History Matters. and mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. History Matters has another good one. JFK Land. So there's a lot of, uh, well, the, uh, what is it? Uh, I was going to say um, the Weisberg Archives, another good one. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and there's stuff, you know, we're getting our hands on on new stuff that, that really wasn't out there before. Like, I I, know, I saw today uh, 
Bart, Bart Camp, the guy that runs PrayerMan.com, he mm-hmm. he just recently posted some some documents he obtained from um, Malcolm Blunt, and it's probably about he said it was about twenty twenty pages or so that has you know Os- basically Oswald's last forty eight hours chronicled in timeline form, and you know got people with the uh, Texas School Book Depository and you know information on them and Marina and Ruth Payne and it's it's really interesting. So you know if you want to check it out, people head over to prayerman.com. There's a button on the website over at tlgpodcast.com where you can head over there and check it out. I mean he's he's adding a lot of good stuff. Um, you know Malcolm Blunt's another one of these these researchers that spent a lot of time with their archives and and has stuff in his possession that nobody's ever seen before. Um, you know, because he's old school. You know, he's not he's not like an online. You know, he's he uh you know it's yeah it goes yeah it goes personal to the collection files. yeah yep <laughs> like Weisberg yeah you know but you know eventually you know like you know these these guys get get older and realize you know look somebody needs to do something with all this stuff and I'm just sitting on it and you know here take it all you know. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully, you know, eventually, you know, we'll get some new stuff that way. Or like I said, when, you know, next year, hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know, we get some results from the 2017 release. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if Jefferson Morley's lawsuit still going on about the Joe yeah, and Evie's files. Yep. You know, maybe we'll get but something from that. Get dragged out, you know, legal legal suits get dragged out as long as they possibly can, I'm sure. Yeah, and just drain financially draining you know and that's what they're hoping they're hoping you'll go away that's what officials usually always try to do is just wait out anybody <laughs> yeah yeah that's a good plan because they got deep pockets you know they can they can last anybody out so <laughs> mm-hmm. but do you mind uh, if i do a uh, quick plug no plug away my friend uh if listeners please get a chance go by tpac.com tpaak.com or neamg neamg.com there you'll also find an archive of the best of long gunman podcast and the best of the ocelli effect uh we also have primary evidence collections where you can go through some of these documents and other things that we've posted uh for you to review um if you get an opportunity to please tune in of course to every episode of the long gunman podcast and the ocelli effect both our, our, we are happy to associate Neapolis Media Group with them, and I think you guys both you have your own separate type of show, but you do you know great contributions from both sides. So, well, thank you, sir, and I would urge everybody out there to get a copy of your excellent book as well. It's a great resource to have, and uh, you know, for anybody of any, uh, I guess, any level of the assassination research, not only of JFK but RFK and MLK too, it is definitely a keeper. And you can thank you. And you can and you can get it on uh, neamg.com. There's links to Amazon there and on my website as well. There's a page dedicated to it too, where you can get your Amazon link and get yourself a copy of Two Princes and a King. Well, Carmine, man, I appreciate it. It's always fun when you come on, and uh, I guess we'll do, we'll we'll have to do it again real soon. Of course, it's <laughs> a pleasure, man. I appreciate coming back. Yeah, exactly. It's it's you know, and some people like I've explained once on Chuck Show, it's our, our gallows humor. You have to be able to laugh about some of this stuff. It is a harsh subject, and it is very daunting to do some of this, so a laugh helps now and then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we got to have fun with some of this stuff. You know, it'd be boring. Yeah, and how crazy some of it gets. Yeah. yeah. yeah if we just, just monotone Ben Stein did all. 
<laughs> so please tell me about the next document, Carmine. Um, <laughs> yeah, who yeah, wants to hear that? Well, <laughs> yeah, NPR. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. All right. Well, we'll do it again real soon, I promise. People, everybody, for more, head over to TLGpodcast.com. If you want to check out the documents for this show, I'm going to post them up there, the links, and you can see them for yourself with your own two eyes. Do it. Until next time, people, the sun bitch is in the can, beam up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace. to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.